Lesson Three of On the Seashore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On the Seashore by Caldwalder Smith. Lesson Three Birds of the Shore. On some parts of our coast, we find steep cliffs with the sea beating wildly at their feet. Elsewhere, there is a sloping beach of sand and shingle, with, perhaps, dark rocks showing at low tide. We explored such a beach as that in our last lesson. There are long, long stretches of sand and thin grass in other places, or else mile after mile of muddy, dreary salt marshes. Birds are to be found on every kind of coast. Some, like the seagull, wander far and wide. Others keep to the cliffs and many find all they need in the wide mud-flats. Such an army is there of these shore-birds that we cannot even glance at them all in this lesson. So we will take a few of them only. The black-headed gull, the cormorant, the ringed plover, the oyster-catcher, and the red shank. Out of all the many kinds of gulls, you know the black-headed one best. If you live in London, you can see and hear him for he and his cousins have swarmed along the Thames of late years. They find food there, and kind people enjoy feeding the screaming birds as they wheel in graceful flight over the bridges and embankment. The country boy, too, sees this gull. He flies far inland, following the plow, and then he rids the land of many harmful grub. Because of this habit, some people call him the sea crow, at all seaside places you find him, and there he fights for his meals with the herring gull, the common gull, the kittiwake, and others. Really, we should call this gull the brown-headed, not the black-headed gull, for the hood is more brown than black, and again, if you look for this bird during your summer holidays, you will see no dark hood on his head. You might, though, know him then by the red legs and bill and the white front edgings to his lovely, pearly gray wings. Look at him in January, however, and you see dark feathers beginning to appear on his head. The fact is, this dark hood is the bird's wedding dress. It comes only when the nesting season draws near. Then he leaves the fields, parks, and rivers to fly away to the nesting place. These gulls love to nest in colonies, that is, near one another. Among rushes and reeds, and rough grass growing in deep wet mud, they feel that their nests are safe. There they lay three eggs. The chicks, almost as soon as they leave the eggs, can run about. If there is no dry land near the nest, these youngsters tumble in the water and swim without bothering about swimming lessons. In the summer, they are ready to fly with their parents round the coast and to the muddy mouths of large rivers where they feed. Flocks of them are also seen out in the open sea, feeding on shoals of small fish. They also follow steamers for the sake of any scraps thrown overboard, and they crowd round the fishing boats when they are being unloaded. You see, they are scavengers, and so are found wherever there are waste scraps of food. Perhaps you have noticed that gulls float high in the sea, like so many corks. They can leave the water easily and take the flight, but 
They cannot dive. The gull's dinner table is the whole coast. His eyes are keen enough, as you will know, if you have watched him swoop down on a piece of bread in midair and catch it neatly in his beak. The flight of this gull is beautiful, graceful, and easy. Sometimes he wheels up and up into the blue sky, almost without moving a wing. He can also glide for a great while, balancing his body against the wind and turning his head from side to side on the lookout for food. Those long, pointed wings of his make him one of nature's most perfect flying machines. His wild laughing cry has given him the nickname of Laughing Gull. In the fields and along the banks of our big rivers, you may see the common gull, with numbers of his black-headed cousins. His beak and legs and webbed feet are greenish-yellow, and this is quite enough to distinguish the two birds. Their habits are much the same. Both skim over the sea or the coast looking for waste food. They are not very choice in their meals. Dead fish or live fish, young crabs, worms, shellfish or grubs, they eat readily, as well as any offal thrown from passing ships or the refuge of the fish market. One of these scavenging birds was seen to be carrying a long object like an eel in its mouth. The bird was shot, and it was then discovered that the eel was really a string of candles. The greedy gull had half swallowed one, leaving the rest to hang down from its bill. The common gull nests in colonies like the black-headed gull. Its nest is made of seaweed, heather, and dried grass, in which it lays its three greenish-brown eggs. Another bird to be seen along all parts of our coast, summer and winter alike, is the cormorant, usually with a small party of his friends. They fly swiftly, one behind the other, and a long line of them reminds one of the pictures of sea serpents, especially as they fly quite near the surface of the sea, each one with its long neck outstretched. The gull flies beautifully, as if he knew his power, and loved to show how he can skim and dive through the air. The cormorant is not a flyer, but a swimmer and diver. He cannot show off in the air, and only uses his narrow wings to take him, as quickly as may be, from one fishing place to another. Most of the cormorant's time is spent in fishing, for he lives entirely on fish, and catches immense numbers of them. He spends many hours, too, in drying his wings. I once saw a number of these birds with their wings hung out to dry. Each one was perched on a stump of wood, across the muddy mouth of a river, and each sooty-looking bird had his wings wide open in the sun. This habit seems to show that the cormorant uses his wings as well as his feet in his frequent journeys under water. The powerful webbed feet of the cormorant, set far back on the body, the darting head, long neck, and long curved beak, tell you plainly how he earns his meals. He is a clever fish-hunter, and the fishermen, knowing the appetite of this keen rival of theirs, detest him and destroy him. In some countries there is a price on his head, that is, so much money is given for every cormorant killed. Sometimes the cormorant swims slowly along, with his head under water, on the watch for small fish. 
Seeing one below him, he dives like a flash and can remain underwater for some time. He wastes very little time, however, in swallowing his victim head first. The great skill of this bird has been made use of, and tame cormorants are used in China to obtain fish for their masters. They have been used in England, too, for the same purpose. A strap is placed round the bird's neck to prevent him from swallowing the catch. He is then set to work. After catching five or six fish, he is recalled by his master and made to disgorge his prey, which, of course, he has swallowed as far as the strap will permit. The cormorant is famous for his large appetite. He chases even big fish, of a size to choke him, you would think. Like his relative the pelican, he owns a very elastic throat. I have seen a pelican put a half-grown duck in its pouch without much trouble. The cormorant could not perform this feat, but his throat will stretch so as to allow the passage of large fish. Small fish he usually tosses up in the air, catches them neatly head first, and swallows them whole. Another bird of our coast is the oyster catcher, sometimes called the sea pie or mussel picker. These names suit it well, for it does not live on oysters but on mussels, limpets, and whelks. Of course, these are easily caught at low tide. They are not easily eaten, so the sea pie has to earn his dinner by hard work. In fact, his beak is often notched by the sharp, hard edges of the shells of these mollusks, and at times he haunts the low banks of mud and ooze near the sea, and there picks up worms and other soft-bodied animals. As his name Sea Pie shows, the oyster catcher is a black and white bird, his underparts being white and upper parts black. His legs and long straight bill are red. Most birds of the waterside seem to find that black and white feathers make a good disguise. Though they would show up plainly on a green field, they are well hidden among the stones along the edge of the water. The sea pie makes no nest, only a hole in the sand or shingle, lined with small stones or shells. The eggs are colored and marked so that they are hard to see among the stones which surround them. The youngsters wear a fluffy suit of gray, marked with dark streaks and dots, and it takes very sharp eyes indeed to pick them out from the shingle where they crouch. The ring plover is another bird which loves the sandy, pebbly margin of the sea. Have you ever watched him there? He is not much larger than a plum lark, and he runs quickly along the beach, stooping now and again to pick up the morsel of food which his keen eye detects. But all the while he is watching you with the other eye, for he is a wary little bird and not to be taken by surprise. If you can get near him, you will notice his rather long, yellowish legs, gray-brown back, and more than all, the white collar round his neck and the black band showing on his white chest. Again we see the black and white markings, which are so useful to the birds of the shore. Everyone who knows the ring plover loves to watch him. He is one of the daintiest, most fairy-like birds. When he is picking up worms and sandhoppers on the wet sand, he is easily observed, but wait. He flies off 
and settles on the shingle not far away. You walk nearer to watch him. Alas, he is gone. You know just where he settled, yet he is gone. He has often played that trick on me. The secret lies in his gray, white, and black markings. When our ships were in danger from enemy submarines, our sailors painted them with queer stripes and bars to make it hard for the enemy to see them. Nature has marked the ring plover on the same plan. The feathers are so colored and the colors are so arranged that, once among the gray, yellow, black and white pebbles on the beach, the little bird is invisible. It is as if the earth had swallowed him up. The eggs, too, are just as hard to find. There is no nest to give the game away, and the eggs look just like the pebbles amongst which they are laid. The young ones are protected from their enemies in the same way, and they crouch as still as death amid the stones which they so much resemble. Now let us leave the beach and look for the red shank on the mud flats. Many birds would starve there, but the red shank is quite happy, as nature has fitted him for life in such a place. His long red legs, from which he gets his name, are for wading in the shallow, muddy creeks he loves. Those wide-spreading feet keep him from seeking in the mud. The long beak is for probing. As a rule, the red shank digs for his dinner, though he also picks up any worms or other food on the surface. But he is nearly always seen probing the mud. Like all shore birds, red shanks are very wary. They have no hedges or trees for hiding places, and so must always be on the watch. No sooner does the red shank spy you than he is up and, with a shrill whistle of alarm, flies quickly away. The marshes are the home of many a bird like the red shank. They are all waders and diggers. They live much as he does, and so they have the long beak and legs, and the spreading feet to fit them for that life. We now have looked at a few seabirds, shorebirds, and a marsh bird. Many inland birds, too, are fond of the shore. The artful jackdraw builds in the cliffs, and his cousin the crow searches the shore for food. Even the gay kingfisher has been seen diving in the seaside pools. Exercises 1. How do you know which is the black-headed gull in the summer months? 2. Why is it difficult to see the ringed plover on the stones of the shore? 3. Where would you look for the eggs of the ringed plover and of the black-headed gull? 4. Why have marsh birds such long beaks? End of Lesson 3 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas.